0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned Books and Books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What well, you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary with writers readers publishers old friends new friends and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books reading or writing these will be informal over the backyard fence kind of conversations the kind i and booksellers everywhere have each and every day Diane Ravitch has been called a hero in her dedication to preserving public school education, a central bastion of our democracy. In her very wonderful brand new book, Slaying Goliath, she writes of a true populist movement sweeping the country, a movement dedicated to protecting public school education. She is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Daniel Patrick Moynihan Prize. She's my guest today. Uh, she comes here from Brooklyn. But I have to say something very personal as well, something that a lot of you out there might not know. When I was in high school, literally in high school, I read a book, uh, a book that influenced me greatly. And it uh, influenced the course of the next uh, 10, 12 years of my life. I read a book by Jonathan Kozol. It was called Death at an Early Age. I think I was in 11th or 12th grade. And after reading that book, I said to myself, you know, I think I might want to teach. And I became a uh, English teacher after graduating from the University of Colorado. And I taught here in Miami. And I spent three years teaching high school English. Um, during that time, uh, I got what I thought, I developed what I thought was a pretty intimate insight into um, the education profession and just how those of us who are teaching and even teachers today are kicked around (laughs) and are made to be political footballs. In this new book that you wrote Slaying Goliath and the subtitle is The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools it's my hope Diane that there'll be a kid sitting in high school somewhere reading this and will be spurred to want to change things one way or another um I don't know if that was your hope when you wrote it uh and I know you've written a number of other books but it's truly a pleasure and an honor to have you as my guest on The Literary Life today.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Mitchell. I have to say that uh, I had read in the New York Times a few years ago about your bookstore, but when I walked in and I came in early so I could walk around, I was blown away that it's a real bookstore. I haven't been in a store like this in a long time. It's just fabulous. Oh, thank uh, so, you. So much in the way of, I don't know, I won't go into all the details. I'll just say that it's a pleasure to be here and to be on your podcast. Uh, I started writing Slaying Goliath at the time that the West Virginia teachers went out on strike two years ago, February 22nd, 2018. I remember the date exactly because I'm going to be in West Virginia on that date to celebrate the second anniversary of the beginning of the teacher strikes, and that strike spread across the country. And when I heard about their strike and as I read about it every day, I realized that something new was happening. Uh, we have had in this country 20 years of teacher bashing, public school bashing. Actually, more than 20 years, but it, it it intensified after the passage of George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind law, and and the people who are very powerful in Washington and in the philanthropic community, like Bill Gates and and lots of other billionaires adopted a mantra of our schools are failing. And so we have to replace them. We have to privatize them. We have to give them over to corporations to run. We have to have dramatic change. And of course, I think that our schools should be a lot better than they are. But what has been happening over the past 20 years has been a steady defunding of public education. And it can't get better when you defund it. It's been defunded but through the creation of charter schools where private boards run, uh, get public money to run essentially private schools. And in Florida and in many other states, um, there have been uh, there, laws passed creating vouchers to pay for religious schools, which teach children biblical values and biblical science and biblical history, uh, and which certainly do not prepare them to live in the 20th century, 21st century. Um, and so I, the teacher strike made me aware that everything was changing and that teachers were standing up and saying, we won't take it anymore. And this movement spread across the country, and I began writing the book. And the book almost wrote itself after that because I began to think of all the victories that the resistance has had over the past several years. And I put together the stories of heroes uh, who have stood up against billionaires, against mayors, against governors, against mandates from above and have won. And instead of, you know, what I've heard for years from teachers is how demoralized they are, and I began to see a a change in the atmosphere. And that's what I wanted to capture, and what I most want for this book is for it to give teachers a sense of hope. And I know that with the last two books I wrote when I began defending public education, people would come up to me at book signings and they would say, I was going to quit, but you've given me hope. I want this book to say to young people who are thinking of becoming a teacher, yes, I wanna be there in the trenches. I wanna fight for public education. This belongs to all of us. We cannot allow it to be taken over by billionaires, by corporations, and by people looking to make a buck, which is happening a lot in Florida, for example. Let's
2: talk about the importance of public education. Can you lay that out for us?
1: Well, public education has been one of the great strengths of our democracy. It is uh, the way in which we educate our children for a future of living with others, in which we inculcate the values of democracy, uh, of cooperation, collaboration, uh, civility. Uh, We teach democracy, and we we should, in the best of circumstances, practice democracy in the schools. Uh, Public education has been the means through which we have first tried to Uh, desegregate our society. We have not succeeded, obviously. Uh, But it was the Brown decision, which was a school decision, that more than any other led to desegregation in all realms of American life. Um, It was public education through which we began to make uh, requirements, mandates, and laws having to do with the inclusion of children with disabilities in schools. And that changed, led to, uh, that led to changes in the workplace where people with disabilities were accommodated and uh, included. Uh, The same thing with children who are English language learners. It's through the schools that uh, society began to recognize its responsibility to be inclusive. What's happening with charter schools and with voucher schools is we are uh, encouraging resegregation of society, resegregation along all of those lines because what choice does, and this is true all over the world, is that choice encourages resegregation by race, by social class, by religion, uh, by almost any dimension you can think of. And so there are some charters that will struggle to be different, but they're not the mainstream. The mainstream is to take the brightest kids and push out the ones who are not getting high test scores. And those will invariably be the kids who have the greatest needs.
2: And you speak from a position of being in the belly of the beast, so to speak. So talk a little bit about that, because you changed your position very famously.
1: Yes, well, I had been, for many years, um, I had been an advocate of all the things I'm now opposing. Uh, I worked uh, in right-wing think tanks. I worked in the first Bush administration. I was in Washington at the time when the idea of charters was proposed. And it seemed like a good idea, it hadn't been tried. And we didn't know, no one knew at that time how it would work out. But I thought, well, maybe if there's competition that will lead to improvements across the board. Uh, Maybe testing is a good idea. And so I was in favor of testing and I thought the testing would lead to um, higher standards, et cetera, et cetera. And it was about, after many years of advocacy for choice and for high stakes testing, It was sometime around 2007, 2006, I began to review what I knew and what was happening and discovered that all the things I hoped would happen were not happening. I looked at the evidence, which is the way, as someone who is, has a doctorate in history, I was trained to look at the evidence. And I looked at the evidence from my own views and said it wasn't an overnight thing, but I realized that I was wrong. And I began to write a book that came out in 2010 called The Death and Life of the Great American School System in which I first of all described the movement towards uh, testing and choice and why it was wrong, and to say, um, I've changed my mind, I was wrong, I'm gonna make up for it. And so I've now written, this is the third book that I've written since I had my change of heart, and change of mind, Uh, and people will say to me, well, why did you change your mind? And I say, because I was wrong. And they say, but nobody ever admits they were wrong. And I said, well, I'm admitting it, I was wrong. Uh, High-stakes testing has been a disaster um, it's a way standard. I don't believe in standardized testing anymore. Uh, standardized testing is a way of ranking students from uh, the weakest to the strongest, or the and what standardized testing does is to show who has the most money and who has the least money. Uh, and there may be exceptions, but they're outliers. If you look at the results, if you look at the results of any standardized test, you will find that in the top half are the kids who have the most and the bottom half are the kids who have the least. And why are we spending literally billions of dollars on testing, on pre-testing, on practice testing, and so forth to identify who has the most and who has the least? We can find that out just by asking the kids, they'll tell you, or, or, or looking at uh, income statements and saving all those billions of dollars and using them to reduce class size and to restore the arts in school. There are many things we could be doing with that money that we're not doing because we're wasting it on standardized testing. So I would have to say that I pretty much reversed all the things I was advocating for and said the evidence didn't bear out what I hoped, uh, in fact, it's having terrible results and harming children and harming communities and uh, damaging public education, which is a, a precious democratic institution.
2: When did this um, movement toward accountability first begin, and and why do you think it did?
1: Well, the the, the business community and government, and uh, I would say probably under the first president Bush. Uh, began to talk about accountability and and having s- high stakes attached to uh, teaching and and testing and students and so forth. Back in the late 1980s, the the first President Bush, whom I worked for, uh, called the national conference or uh, about education in 1989 in Charlottesville, Virginia. And all the governors got together and they agreed that we had to have high standards and we were going to be first in the world in science and first in the world in this and first in the world in that. and But no money. They were not going to put any money in. it just that it was going to happen as a wish list. And so the business community decided it was their responsibility to get involved. And so you began having all these non-educators imposing their will. And their will was, if you dream it, it will happen. You know, build, in, build it and they will come, sort of a, a attitude. Um, and a lot of complaints about spending too much money on education, which we were not doing. Um, and what was happening at the same time that the demands on educators became harsher and harsher was that the society was actually disinvesting in schools and the economy was creating um, was hollowing out the middle class, and so we begin having, and and not overnight, but we now have today a society where the one percent has a huge uh, proportion of our national wealth, and the people are at the at the bottom. See no path upward. Uh, we used to have vigorous unions, and the right wing has decimated the unions. And the unions were a path towards rising out of poverty and joining the middle class, joining the working class first of all. But then, having as part of being part of a, uh, as being part of a union, you would also have health benefits and other kinds of benefits that would protect you from falling into dire poverty. We've removed all of those supports, and so we have more children today. Uh, who have vast needs and we're not spending enough to take care of them. About 20% of our kids live in deep poverty. About 50% of our kids are considered low income. And the schools are expected to meet all of their needs, but not with the resources that they need to do this. And so at the very time where the needs of the kids are intense, states like Florida uh, and many other states are creating competitive systems. And the competition is not creating better schools. It's creating worse schools by diverting resources.
2: Yeah, talk about how those resources get diverted in terms of vouchers and other sorts of things. Well,
1: in in Florida, for example, uh, the state has now about 10% of its kids. Out of 3 million kids uh, who are school age, about 300,000 are in charter schools. So they're taking the money away from public schools and handing them over to charter operators, some of which are operated for profit, and they're skimming off money so that they can put it in their bank account. Some of them have relatives in the legislature who make sure that they have even more profit. And about uh, 5% of the kids have taken vouchers, and they go to schools that are, for the most part, religious schools. Some of them discriminate against kids who are not of their religion, Uh, Some of them discriminate against kids and staff and, and families who are gay, and they have no accountability, whatever. The kids who go to religious schools don't take the test. So the state has been ratcheting up the accountability for public schools, and the charters have to take tests as well. Uh, but they have no accountability at all for the voucher kids, and the state keeps trying to expand the voucher program so that more and more kids will not have any accountability, and will be in schools where they're using textbooks that teach them science from the Bible.
2: And that's not extra money; that's money that is right. earmarked for public education. Right? That's it's well.
1: all it's all one pot, and it's so. What all these charters and vouchers are costing the state right now is $3 billion a year. So that $3 billion a year would make a big difference if it were spent in public schools, but instead it's being diverted to uh, the charter and voucher schools.
2: You know, uh, John Freeman, um, who I love to read in Lit Hub and read some of his books, he's the executive editor, and and he wrote a review of your book, and he says, he starts it with, Uh, Diane Ravitch's latest book opens with an eye-popping quote. If a foreign country had inflicted upon our public education system what Ed Reform plutocrats and their toadying political sycophants have imposed upon it, this anonymous source says, we would have considered it an act of war. Um, And he goes on to say that it's not an exaggeration. So, you know, the book is called Slaying Goliaths. We'll talk about the heroes in a minute and who's slaying those Goliaths, but tell me a little bit about the Goliaths. Who are they?
1: Well, I think it's important for the public to understand uh, who who wants to privatize America's schools, an incredible number of billionaires. And I uh, have a chapter in which I just say who they are, And um, one of my sons is is a writer, and I ask him to read the book. He says, Mom, there's too many names in this chapter. Who's going to want to read all these names? And I said, but Michael, that's the point. Look at look how many of them there are. There's there's Bill Gates. There's the DeVos family. Uh, there are the Koch brothers. Now there's just one Koch brother. Uh, but the Walmart family. The Walmart the biggest spenders of all are the Waltons who own the Walmart family. The Waltons are collectively as a family worth over 150 billion dollars. Um, Eli Broad who's a billionaire in California, John Arnold a, a billionaire in Texas, Reed Hastings who owns Netflix who's a billionaire in California.
2: These are all proponents These of are the all charter schools. These group. are all
1: people who have given large sums of money uh, to promote charter schools. Michael Bloomberg who's worth over 50 billion dollars is a huge charter proponent. Uh, now when a, someone who's worth 100 billion dollars or 150 billion dollars puts up 200 million a year to add more charter schools, that's like nothing for them. That's like me giving a dollar to somebody on the street. 150 billion dollars. The Walmart people are making four million dollars every hour of the day, 24 seven. So it doesn't really mean much for them to put a few hundred million in. Uh, the federal government is one of the biggest funders of charter schools. Uh, the federal government right now is spending 440 million a year to add new charter schools, and it's solely under the control of Betsy DeVos, who doesn't like public schools. So um, I have the list. It's it's also the corporations. And the biggest organization in all of this is an organization that I think should be well-known, but not many people have ever heard of it. It's called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council.
2: They make up bills that they then get introduced into various uh, states, houses of representatives.
1: Alec, the American Legislative Exchange Council has 2,000 members. They're all state legislators, and you can go on their website and you can see the, the names of them. There are a lot of them from the Midwest and the South, but. They're almost everywhere, except in the very, very blue states. And they go to the ALEC meetings and they get model legislation. And the model legislation will say things like uh, how to get rid of teachers unions, uh, how to make sure that teachers don't have have to be certified, um, but also how to get rid of gun control and how to introduce legislation to make it easier for people to own guns and and not to be regulated in any way, Uh, how to get rid of environmental regulation. It's like they want to deregulate everything and the only thing they want government money to go to is religious schools. (laughs) It's kind of ironic, the libertarian movement is is generally opposed to all government spending, but they want more money for religious schools. So ALEC is very crucial because uh, there will be bills introduced simultaneously in Ohio and Alabama and Arizona uh, and many, many states, and it's all coming from this one source where they're uh, writing the bills that can then be carried to all 50 states.
2: He's now a presidential candidate, but would you say that Bloomberg has the same um, goals in mind as someone like Alec? I mean, he's doing it for a different reason,
1: Bloomberg is not an Alec person. And I I don't know if Bill Gates is or not, although at one point I found that he had given almost $400,000 to Alec. And Mm. when I called him on it, he said he wouldn't do it anymore. And he didn't say it to me personally, but the president of his foundation did. Uh, Bloomberg is very good on some issues, like he's very good on the environment, he's very good on smoking. He uh, is very good on gun control. He's horrible on schools, uh, and I say this as somebody who lives in New York because his education policy was exactly the same as George W. Bush's. Uh, everything that was in No Child Left Behind was then copied in New York or, or piloted in, in New York. High stakes testing, data driven. Uh, everybody at one point, everybody in the entire system had to teach everything in the same way. So it it was it, it was a time during Bloomberg's reign when uh, many teachers were uh, got discouraged and left the teaching profession or simply went to other districts, uh, many principals were fired because they wanted to bring in uh, principals from the business world. He's very much the corporate-minded uh, plutocrat when it comes to education. He
2: thinks the, that, that, that business can do it better. Right. That if you and
1: I think this, this is true the, of many of these billionaires. There are billionaires who consider themselves progressives, but they don't like the public sector because they believe the private sector is better at everything than the public sector. And you know, I I, I have to say, I believe the private sector is terribly important. I mean, I wouldn't want to see your bookstore run by the government. <laughs> uh, I like that it's run by you and you can make your own choices. But I think any healthy society has both a, a strong public sector and a strong private sector. And right now, the private sector led by the plutocrats who, you know, amongst themselves have many, many powerful people. They buy legislatures, uh, and they pass bills to protect themselves and to lower their taxes. I mean, the Waltons being one example of this, the Waltons being probably the richest family in America are fighting their tax bills all over the country. Uh, They want Walmart to pay lower taxes. They should not be paying lower taxes. They should be paying their workers $20 an hour, which would do far more for the children they have a million workers, right. so if they paid them $20 an hour, A, the corporation can afford it, but B, they'd be helping the parents of uh, you know, millions of children rather than opening charter schools all over the country. The Waltons have by themselves taken credit for opening one out of every four charters in America.
2: Oh my, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So give me the skinny on what you've discovered to be where have the charters failed, mostly? What is the failure of the charter system?
1: Well, the, the fundamental failure is that there the charters are getting public money without accountability. And if anybody says to any corporation, you can get free public money and no one will find out, no one will audit you, no one will see who you're hiring, no one will check your books, well, there will be people lined up to get it. And so there have been, and I, I go into detail in my book about the scandals in the charter sector that come about because no one is looking. I mean, if you were to look for the single biggest uh let's say scandal in the charter world it would be the cyber charters the online charters and they pay off legislators to um, make sure that their presence is is uh, that they're available in many states right now pennsylvania is the worst they have about 12 or 14 different cyber chains in their state and they get paid full tuition and they provide nothing but a computer and then the kids can watch instruction online and maybe they log on for a minute, but nobody's checking to see if there's anyone there. Uh, the biggest charter the biggest uh, cyber charter in the in the country was in Ohio, and it just went bankrupt about a year ago after having taken a billion dollars of public dollars, a uh, billion dollars over uh, twenty years of its existence. And it went bankrupt because the state was trying to audit its books to see if there were actually any students there and how often they logged on and they said they'd rather go bankrupt than be audited. But the single biggest uh, charter scandal occurred just last spring in California where a, a, corp- a charter corporation there was indicted for the theft of over $50 million. Now, how do you lose $50 million <laughs> in a school? I mean, they had a lot of ghost students, and uh, nobody's auditing the books, and it's free public money, and so that's a huge failure. You know, there is a there would be a place for charters if they were authorized first of all, only by the school district saying, we actually need you to do this. We can't do it. We need the help. And if they were accountable and had to account for both the money and the students. I mean, just just the other day, there was a, a story from, I forget which town in uh, Florida, but the story was that uh, the state auditors found two schools and said, we don't think you have any students. Give back five and a half million dollars. Well, maybe they do have students and maybe they don't, but why does it take a state audit to find out that, or even raise the question of why they have students. So there's a lot of this sh- uh, slipshod stuff going on. And the other question that's interesting, and fra- frankly upsetting about charters, is that um, there's only one state that legally allows for-profit charters, and that's Arizona, which is the wild west of chartering. And I could go on and on, as I do in the book, about Arizona and all the misdeeds right. there. Uh, but in many of the other states, and Florida is an example of this, for-profit charters are illegal, but they're all over the place because they're being run by for-profit corporations. So they have a nonprofit board and a for-profit management. And Michigan's an example of this as well because in Michigan they don't allow for-profit charters, but 80% of the charters are run for-profit. So, so the so, management companies are right.
2: profit for-profit
1: Exactly, companies. and some of the worst for-profit charters are in Florida.
2: Is there Are there examples where they're working at all?
1: Well, I'm sure that there are, and I, I hear from, for, uh, from nonprofits that say, we're doing a good job, but the issue is that some of those good charters are becoming a protection for the bad charters, right. and they all have to be subject to the same rules, which is that there has to be full transparency, full accountability. I point out in the book that uh, the NAACP in 2016 very bravely said, we are demand a moratorium on all new charters until there is transparency, accountability, and until charters stop cherry picking the students that they want and kicking out the kids they don't want.
2: That's a huge issue.
1: That is a huge issue because we hear stories. The public schools can't do that. No, well, the public schools get the kids that are kicked out of the <laughs> right. charter schools, and we hear stories. And, and I know in New York, uh, there's a huge press. Uh, support for one particular chain it's called Success Academy and their kids have the highest test scores in the state but what they don't talk about is uh, the entering class might be in in their first class was 78 kids and then 12 years later there were 16 16 graduates, 16 graduates out of 78. Well along the way they do two things one is after third or fourth grade they don't accept any new students and then they start winnowing out the kids who can't cut it for, right. with the test scores and so they had at the end of the uh, line 16 graduates and that kind of attrition and cherry picking and exclusion is should be unacceptable because the kids who don't make it in the charter get bounced to the public school which takes everybody
2: well well let's you know the good news is that um there are some heroes involved, and and people are, are there is a resistance, and there have been some victories over the last ten years. So tell me about some of the some of the Davids in this.
1: Well, you know, I think that the stories that I've unearthed uh, to me they're wonderful because in some cases it's it's one person, in some cases it's a handful of people, but in some other cases it's an organization who stood up. And so I try to identify the people who've stood up alone. Uh, one of them was a woman in, in Nashville, Tennessee, Amy Frog, who ran for school board. And she didn't know at the time. She was a lawyer. She was a parent. had a, Her child was in um, in a Title I school, which is a school for poor kids. And she said, you know, it's a really good school. And kids are poor, but so what? It's a great school, and I want to make it better. And then she ran for school board. And... All this money started pouring in from out of state, and she had no idea why were all these out-of-staters interested in defeating her? And she and her friends did a lot of knocking on doors, and she got elected. And that was when she discovered that all that out-of-state money was coming from charter people who wanted one of their own on the board, not her. And the more she informed herself, the more outspoken she became. She ran again. She, She was again outspent five to one, and she won overwhelmingly. And she has been the voice of of sanity in Metro Nashville. Um, a woman in New York, uh, Laney Hameson, was very upset when she found that uh, Bill Gates and the Carnegie Corporation, or the Gates Foundation the Carnegie Corporation had put together $100 million to uh, get control of students' personally identifiable information and put it into a cloud managed by Amazon. And as she put it, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> except that there was no guarantee that any of this would not be hacked. And she was very upset. Laney Hampson was very upset. She joined with a parent in Colorado named Rachel Sticklin. And the two of them agitated parents all over the country wherever in this this endbloom in project was gonna go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gates, Gates and Carnegie had created something called Endbloom. And they developed the parent resistance without, a, without any money at all behind them. And en Bloom collapsed. $100 million put it into, it, into it to gather all this personally identifiable data, and it collapsed. Uh, my favorite story, uh, I, well, I, I love all the stories, but one of my favorite stories is a story from Chicago uh, where a civil rights activist named G2 Brown was very upset because Rahm Emanuel, the Democratic mayor, was going to close the last open enrollment high school in Bronzeville, which is the historic black community. And it was the Walter Diet High School, so G2 and his friends would go to wherever Rahm Emanuel went, and they would hold up signs saying "Save Diet, Save Diet." And of course, Rahm Emanuel totally ignored them. And then, at it, it wit's end, they started a hunger strike, and they opened up. There, there were twelve of them. They opened up lawn chairs and they sat on the lawn of Walter Diet High School, which at that time, at that point, was a dying school. Its its closure had been announced. There were very few students left. And this was their last gasp hope. So they sat in their lawn chairs, and on the 34th day of their hunger strike, the national media now was paying attention to these hunger strikers. And Rahm Emanuel gave up, and he said he was not only going to keep the Walter Diet School open, uh, he would invest 15 or 16 million dollars and turn it into the Walter Diet High School for the Arts. So it was a wonderful victory, and it was only 12 people up against the most powerful mayor in the, uh, certainly one of the most powerful sure. in the country. How but,
2: incredibly inspiring.
1: Yes, but you know, there are stories like that all over the country, and uh, I, I tried to uh, identify as many as I could, and there were many more that I didn't get into the book because it was getting too long. But some of them ins- were just individuals, and I name people who haven't won a victory, but who day after day are plugging away. Uh, there's a guy in Atlanta Georgia named Ed Johnson who's brilliant and he writes a letter about once a week to the Atlanta school board telling them why why they're doing the wrong thing following the this path of disruption i don't call it reform i call it disruption and telling them what they ought to be doing instead and he's a great believer in the philosophy of a man named Edwards Deming who was a taught the Japanese how to retool their industries, but not along business lines, along lines of collaboration, people working together towards a common vision, and having a vision that included everybody. And he's plugging away. He hasn't won yet, but I'm convinced he will win.
2: These individual voices, when, you know, reading the book, it's uh, it's it's also a roadmap for you know, political resistance as much as anything else. Um, And, you know, this is in the educational realm, but it could be in a lot of other realms as well.
1: I have to say to you, and I I keep saying my favorite story. I have so many favorite stories, but one of my favorite stories was Massachusetts because the Waltons decided that they needed needed to have the bluest of blue states uh, with more charters and so they hatched a plan to have a referendum in the state of Massachusetts. And they had the referendum in 2016, and they did early polling. The early, po- the early polling showed that their referendum to expand the number of charters would win easily. But by the time the teachers union, led by a woman named Barbara Madaloni, got involved, she organized teachers, she organized parents, they organized local school committees. And by, by the time the referendum was held in November of 2016, uh, the Waltons lost overwhelmingly. They had spent twice as much money as the teachers, um, and they did. A, they did an after analysis w- that was quite interesting because they said we lost because of that communist, that <laughs> radical, that l- <laughs> that labor leader named Barbara Madaloni. Right. And of course, she's very proud of that.
2: Of course, <laughs> but it's a be.
1: wonderful story because it shows how if you can take these issues to the electorate, they they always lose. The, bad, the the good guys win, public education wins, because almost 90% of the kids in this country go to public schools, and people actually like their public schools. It's part of their community.
2: And they understand the power of community as well right. that it brings. And
1: so when people say to me, what is the most important thing you can do? I say, take it to the voters. And interestingly in Florida, people took, or Jeb Bush took vouchers to the voters in 2012 and was defeated. And he didn't care. He just went ahead and created voucher program after voucher program, even though vouchers lost in an election by 55 to 45. And he even misleadingly called the voucher referendum, not a voucher referendum, he called it a religious freedom amendment. And he figuring, how many people are going to vote against religious freedom? Well, 55% of the people did because they figured out it was about vouchers. Had he called it a voucher amendment, it would have gone down by about 68 to 70%.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting how fortunately you can't underestimate voters that much.
1: (laughs) Right, right. But you know, people, if there's enough information, if there's enough public education of the public, the public schools win.
2: So tell me, how, you're from Houston originally. Right. So where did all this interest in education come from?
1: Well, I went to Houston public schools from kindergarten through 12th grade, and um, so did my siblings. I only had one sibling who didn't go to public school, he misbehaved so much that they sent him to military school. (laughs) And I always think about this in terms of Donald Trump, that when when (laughs) kids went to military school, it was to straighten them out. Well, I guess they straightened out my brother, but they didn't Didn't straighten out Donald Trump. (laughs) Um, But we were all public school kids, and I I always had a good opinion of the schools. When I went away to college, I went to um, Wellesley College, which I was the only person in my class of four or 500 kids to go away east. And the first paper I ever wrote was about the politics of education in the Houston public schools because our public school board would, uh, it was an elected board every two years and we had a John Birch Society that every two years would take over the public schools and then they would be thrown out two years later, and then they'd come back and win. So it was every other year.
2: So they would win a majority on the public school. Right, uh,
1: warning that the schools were filled with communists who wanted to integrate the schools. Uh, So I was fascinated with all of this, and I guess I never lost that fascination.
2: And so that led you to study it, and then you got your... I
1: didn't have a straight line career. I went to college, I was married almost immediately after college. I had children uh, very early in my marriage when I was in my early twenties. Uh, I was, a. Uh, uh, didn't start graduate school until about 10 or 12 years after I graduated college. So I, I, I pretty much had a period of 10 or 12 years of, I'm a mom and I'm, but I'm reading a lot and, uh, and then started graduate school and decided that what I wanted to study most of all was the history, history of education. And so my first book, uh, I graduated college in 1960, and my first book came out in 1975. It was called um, The Great School Wars. It was a history of the New York City public schools. And that's what I've been doing since 1975. This, is, this has been my life. And I'm, I can be, um, if you're interested in education, I guess I'm f- fun to talk to. If you're not interested in education, not so much.
2: Well, this has been just fascinating as a, as a short-time former teacher and someone who has always been interested in what happens, I have three kids, public education has always been a very important part of our family and a very important part of me. Uh, this has been wonderful, and you, you're, you're one of my personal heroes, and I think you'll find tonight at the event that we're going to have, there are going to be lots of people here who are going to be so heartened by uh, by this book, and to know that there are there are people out there who are making a difference. and you know, uh, teachers don't always have to feel like they have the weight of the world on their shoulders.
1: Well, I have to say that I've uh, over the last ten years, I've traveled a lot. I've probably been in almost every state, and I have met thousands literally, I don't know how many thousands of teachers. I have been incredibly impressed by how smart they are, how dedicated they are, how hard they work, uh, how they're, they're, they don't get the recognition they deserve. And I feel if there's anything I can do to help them and to protect them and to stand up for them in the public sphere, that I can use the whatever space I get to say I'm on your side and I'm going to fight for you because they're busy teaching the kids; they can't fight for themselves. So. I'm on their side.
2: And you are doing it, and you're making the world better, and I thank you for being on The Literary Life, Diane Ravitch. And the name of the book is Slaying Goliath. So uh, everyone go out, buy it, and, uh, and you'll learn something quite profound. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mitchell.